There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder... Dating in a world of apps and anonymous meetings can bring forth a lot of concern and fear for both parties involved. On October 8, 1951, a man was born who would be the cause of that fear in an entire community in Toronto, Canada, leaving at least eight bodies in his wake. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On September 6, 2010, a man named Skandara Skanda Naratam, a native of Sri Lanka who moved to Toronto for a fresh start with more freedoms, disappeared into the night and set off a domino effect that no one in Canada saw coming. Years after his disappearance, the Toronto Police Service, TPS, started something called Project Houston, which originally was created just to try and locate the still-missing Skanda. In reality, the project would go on to last 18 months and link the disappearances of three men of South Asian or Middle Eastern origin, all of whom frequented an area called Church and Wellesley, a popular hotspot for Toronto's LGBTQ plus community. TPS had been looking for Skanda for about two years when they got a lead involving a cannibals website and a post about killing and consuming a man in Toronto, leading to the formation of Project Houston. But none of their leads, including the ones involving famed serial killer Luca Magnata and another involving surveillance of a retired hospital technician, seemed to pan out. By 2013, they had linked Abdul Basir Fazi and Majid Kahan's disappearance to Skanda's. And on November 11, 2013, an anonymous tip led straight to a man named Bruce MacArthur. See, both Abdul Basir and Majid had something in common other than their disappearance. They both lived double lives, happily married during the day and finding male companions at night in church in Wellesley. Now, in looking into the anonymous tip, police were able to determine a romantic connection between both Skanda and Majid and this man named Bruce MacArthur. In fact, he and Skanda were considered longtime friends, and he even employed Majid after ending their sexual relationship. Unfortunately, Project Houston concluded shortly thereafter due to complete lack of evidence. Then, on June 26, 2017, a man named Andrew Kinsman from Cabbage Town disappeared one day after attending Toronto's Pride event. He was reported missing a few days later by friends. Now, the major difference between Andrew's disappearance and those investigated by Project Houston was that Andrew was not shy about his sexuality. There was no double life for this man. In fact, he had deep roots in the queer community. Working as a bartender in the area, was a longtime volunteer with an AIDS foundation, and was a superintendent of his building. He was a stable, responsible man who had friends that knew he wouldn't just up and leave without any warning. And when police looked into his life a bit and found that the usually very active social media user had his phone turned off, they were keen to believe his friends. While police looked into the 49-year-old's case, a man named Greg Downer started a Find Andrew Kinsman and Toronto's Missing Rainbow Community group, both of which garnered about 600 members, to try and spread public awareness about the growing issue within the community. By July of 2017, police had created a new task force, 
Project Prism to try and investigate the disappearance of both Andrew Kinsman and another man named Salim Asin, who had gone missing a few months before Andrew. They also worked to see if there was any connections between these newer cases and those investigated under Project Houston. That August, Greg Downer organized a community meeting in which police gave an overview of the case and thanked the community for an abundance of information they were able to call into the task force. The community was rightfully scared for themselves and their friends and provided strategies for staying safe when meeting people online, while Greg appealed to the dating apps for the option to release their online data in the event that they go missing. Apps that were causing a pretty lengthy delay for police as they faced judicial red tape. Volunteers searched daily until the weather became too dangerous. Hotlines were set up, articles were written, and posters were hung on every surface. Everyone seemed to be doing their part, though there was some anger that it took a white man disappearing for police to take the cases seriously. But thanks in large part to Andrew's friend's swift missing persons report and the refusal to stop searching for answers, police found a very important piece of evidence that would tie the whole investigation up into a nice little bow. In Andrew's calendar for June 26, 2017, was the name Bruce. And when surveillance tapes were pulled for outside of his apartment, police saw a man matching Andrew's description approach a red car that was parked outside of his residence. The tape didn't offer a whole lot of information. The plate was unseen and the picture too blurry to get a good look at the driver. But what it did include was a chrome siding that was common on 2004 Dodge Caravans. While there were 6,000 of these caravans registered to drivers in Toronto alone, only five belonged to someone named Bruce, one of which was familiar to investigators, Bruce MacArthur, who bought the car just two weeks after he was interviewed by Project Houston. So who was this two-time suspect, Bruce MacArthur? Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur was born on October 8, 1951 in Lindsay, Ontario, to two parents who often fostered troubled children on their farm in Argyle. Raised by devout parents, Bruce was known as the teacher's pet in his one-room schoolhouse, a tattletale by his fellow classmates, and a mama's boy to his strict disciplinarian of a father. He was also a boy who, from a very early age, battled with his homosexuality and how to hide it from the world. In high school, he met and began dating a girl named Janice Campbell. And after graduating together in 1970, and Bruce completing a general business program a few years later, the 23-year-olds made the decision to finally tie the knot. It was around this time that Bruce started to mend his strained relationship with his father, who, unfortunately, after his mother died in 1978, joined his wife in 1981. By 1986, Bruce, Janice, and their children, Melanie and Todd, moved to Oshawa, where Bruce became heavily involved in the church as a way to push down the sexuality he had been hiding for most of his life. But by the 1990s, it became something that he no longer wished to suppress. Working as a traveling salesman, Bruce began a string of affairs with men and, a year or so later, actually made the decision to come out to his wife. They decided to remain together and raise their children. Sometime after 1993, Bruce's job came to an end, around the same time that their son, who had been making obscene phone calls to strangers, needed help paying some hefty legal fees. The couple had mortgaged their home in 1997, separating that same year, 
1999, they declared bankruptcy. While his life seemed to be falling apart on the surface, Bruce finally made the brave decision to move off to Toronto and become heavily involved in the local gay community, living his personal truth for the first time in his life. He frequented bars in Church and Wellesley, moved into a nearby apartment, and started a four-year relationship with a man whom he cared for deeply. So much so that, when they broke up around the time his divorce was finalized, Bruce found himself in need of psychiatric help. He was prescribed Prozac for several months to help him through the rough patch. It was also around this time that he started looking for work as a landscaper, a fact that would become integral to the TPS's case in the future. On October 31st, 2001, Bruce MacArthur was invited into the home of a male sex worker with whom he had been chatting to see this man's Halloween costume. For reasons unknown, 50-year-old Bruce struck the man from behind with a metal pipe, hitting him several times before leaving him for dead. When the anonymous man finally came to, he called 911 and was taken to the hospital. Bruce, who would later turn himself in for the assault, told police that he could not remember the incident, or why he hit the man to begin with. He pleaded guilty to assault with a deadly weapon and assault causing bodily harm and was given a conditional sentence of 729 days. The victim, who was left completely traumatized and needing six weeks of physiotherapy, did not provide a victim impact statement. Despite the fact that some thought he needed prison time, with some speculation that his outburst was a combination of his anti-seizure medications mixed with the recreational amyl nitrate, or poppers, Bruce spent the first year of his sentence on house arrest, six months with nothing but a curfew, and the last three months just on probation. For the entirety of his sentence, he was barred from Church and Wellesley, except for work and any medical appointments, and was banned from hiring any other male sex workers. He was also forced to submit a DNA into a database and was told to take part in both psychological and psychiatric counseling on top of anger management. Feeling as though they had covered all their bases, Bruce was granted a record suspension in 2014, and the whole incident was expunged from his record while almost all of the records and exhibits from his case were destroyed in 2010 in compliance with TPS's retention policy. Basically, it was as if this deadly assault had never taken place and Bruce was free to get back to living his life. A life that, while the charges against him were still before the court, started to include the use of fetish dating sites looking for a willing BDSM partner to dominate him. And when he joined Facebook in 2011 to catalog his wild nightlife, it included photos of him at bars accompanied by young men of South Asian or Middle Eastern descent. Everything seemed to be falling into place for Project Prism and the TPS. And on October 3rd, 2017, plain-clothed officers arrived at Dom's Auto Parts looking for Bruce's Dodge Caravan. They found it, and inside were traces of blood that belonged to Andrew Kinsman. The following month, cadaver dogs were sent to a residence in Toronto, where Bruce had exchanged landscape work for storage space in their garage. But the dogs did not indicate any human remains at the time. However, a camera was installed in the garage, Police got a log from Bruce's key fob for his apartment and obtained a tracking warrant for his cell phone. With all of this, they created a timeline for the day that Andrew Kinsman went missing. 
After the blood in his van was further tested and matched to both Andrew and Salim, police obtained a general warrant for his apartment and covertly entered that December so they could clone his computer hard drive. On December 6th, Project Prism issued a warning about dating apps, and on December 8th, a news conference was held in which investigators said that they completed 62 interviews, 28 judicial authorizations, and had completed 225 of 308 actions using canines, drones, and good old-fashioned police work to search for any and all evidence. By January, things were going full steam ahead, and Bruce was on round-the-clock surveillance. Then, on January 18, 2018, officers watching Bruce MacArthur saw a young man enter his apartment and, believing his life was at risk, arrested the man that they were sure was responsible for at least eight connected disappearances. When they entered his apartment, the man was restrained on the bed, but was thankfully unharmed. He was a recent Middle Eastern immigrant who had only been in Canada for five years. While they were certain Bruce was responsible for the disappearances and the murders, the complete lack of bodies did cause some concern when it came to assuring a conviction. So by the end of January, investigators far and wide became involved in the unprecedented search of 30 properties in which Bruce worked as a landscaper. And on January 18th, five of those properties associated with his business were cordoned off with cadaver dogs showing strong interest in some planter boxes on the 19th. Because they were frozen solid, they were taken to the coroner's office on January 22nd. And on the 29th, police announced that they had found skeletal remains of at least three different people in two of the 12 large planter boxes. Bruce MacArthur was then charged with three counts of first-degree murder in the presumed deaths of Majid Kehan, Sarush Mamoudi, who disappeared in 2015, and Dean Lisowicz, a homeless man who was never reported missing. The investigation into his crime would later be called the largest Toronto had ever undertaken and ended with the formation of a dedicated missing persons unit. But they were far from done. On February 8th, another announcement determined that there were three more remains found at the Leaside home, one of which belonged to Andrew Kinsman, who was identified using fingerprints. Additional planters were seized across the city, but due in large part to the cold weather, the cadaver dogs had a hard time making indications. What they did find, though, was enough to add more charges to Bruce's case, and by the end of February, he was facing six first-degree murder charges, one of which included the death of Skandara Navratnam, the subject of Project Houston. In early March, police held a press conference and released the photo of an unidentified victim of Bruce MacArthur in hopes the public could help identify him. About 500 tips came through with 22 potential identities. And as remains continued to be recovered, police came to the realization that eight was only the minimum of victims he took. On April 11th, Bruce was charged with the murder of Abdul Basir Fazi, and on the 16th, the death of Karushna Kumar, an asylum seeker, was added to that list of charges. From July 4th to the 13th, about 20 police investigators evacuated a forested ravine behind the properties where the planters were found. They found human remains almost every day of their search. It was at this point that the local media started calling Bruce MacArthur the deadliest known serial killer, and the most prolific gay serial killer in Canadian history. 
In January of 2018, a publication ban was ordered for the upcoming court proceedings involving Bruce MacArthur's case. His first court appearance was on January 19th, 2018, and on January 29th, he pleaded guilty to each of the eight counts against him, thus ending the possibility of a trial. On February 8th, 2019, he was sentenced to life imprisonment with no parole for 25 years by a judge who called him pure evil and claimed he would have continued the murders had he not been caught. Despite this, his age and guilty plea allowed for the parole opportunity, which will come when he is 91 years old, meaning it is highly unlikely he will ever see life outside prison ever again. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on October 9th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.